Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 100. Here we are, episode 100. My name is Charles Lowell. I'm a developer here at the Frontside, and I think it's safe to say your official podcast host. With me to celebrate the 100th episode, he was also here a few episodes ago, but also was here on our first episode, I believe, is the inevitable Hayes. Hello, Brandon. Welcome Hi. To Actually, like, are you going to light your trainee badge on fire now in a bucket I, in a ceremonial pyre? I live in New Mexico, so I think I'm going to just after this grab my shotgun and give myself a 21 gun salute. <laughs> <laughs> just in my there front goes, yard. There goes old man Lowell again with a shotgun. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to in my own honor. Uh, I was I was at the Alamo this weekend, actually, and they I don't know if it was just because it was Fiesta in San Antonio, but they had a demonstration like a a musket firing demonstration where uh, those things are basically little cannons. They're just small cannons. It's very interesting. They're They're very loud. So wait, were you um, what is is Fiesta? Now, someone Uh, grew up in central Texas. I feel like I ought to know this. I don't know. We found out by accident because we were planning a weekend to go hang out and get drunk on the Riverwalk. And Mm -hmm. we took our families down with some friends. And then they're like, oh, it's Fiesta, which is like a 10-day celebration of the history and establishment of San Antonio, which I did not know, is a 300-year-old institution. So it's like Mm -hmm. one of the oldest things uh, in this entire like Western United States. Yeah. So – uh, it's pretty neat. It's a different, you know, it's weird. It's like 90 minutes from Austin, Austin. There's nothing in Austin that's older than like six months. Uh, <laughs> every six months we must demolish something and then build a, uh, condo skyscraper in its place. So it was kind of neat to be in a city where it has, you know, walking around the Alamo and realizing, wow, you know, setting aside any of the historical significance of, you know, t- Texas independence or whatever, this is just like a really interesting, very old building. Like this is mm-hmm. hundreds of years old in a, in an area where there's nothing that's hundreds of years old. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was a, it was a good weekend and we got to see muskets being fired and we saw, uh, a doctor gross my kids out by talking about, uh, the medicine of the day, uh, in full Mm -hmm. costume and showing all of the procedures and threatening my kids with amputation. And it was a good, it was a good time. We all had a good time. My nine-year-old thought it was the coolest damn thing he'd ever seen. Really? Did they have like uh, bloody saws and everything? Oh yeah. Was it like a reenactment of 300 year old surgery? Uh, it wasn't a full reenactment, but there was it was a graphic description using the tools of the time. So, wow. highly recommend check out the Alamo. Super fun. That does sound really cool. I did not I did not expect to have a good time, and it was a good time. Yeah, yeah. No, the the whole reenactment with the musket firing is fun, and and it is it is it's actually an incredible building. Although there was a huge there's been a big kerfuffle about uh, about something about the you know how they're going to preserve the lawn, but I haven't really followed that. Yeah, uh, too much. Yeah, so, I don't. I, I don't care about the lawn. I care about. No offense, lawn. If lawn is listening, uh, <laughs> that's. Isn't that weird? How Stanley broke our brains with the word lawn. That's true. Yeah, he's he broke us real good. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't. Uh, yeah, can't, uh, can't see a lawn without a beard. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so life has been pretty good, man. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I left Frontside uh, September October twenty sixteen. So it's been. Um, months 18 yeah some thereabouts right 
So mm -hmm. I assume that nothing happened since then. And if I came back to the front side now, everything would be exactly as I left it. My posters are still up in my room, my Bon Jovi poster. Uh, you left my bed just as I made it, like kind of unmade. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is just preserved as a shrine to me. Pretty much. I mean, we did give away the mics to Goodwill. No. Uh, but that was no we 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 actually did not give those give away those mics. <laughs> I never even got to use them. I know. Well, you know, part of the problem is we don't even get to use them that much either. Like it looks really cool and it plays really well, like our podcast studio, but you know, I'm now spending 75% of my time in Corrales, New Mexico. So, and at any given time, people are either working from home or working remotely. So, a lot of times the podcast room tragically does not get used, but it looks so cool. People come in and they're like, wow, you guys must be really smart and technical people. Um, so I, I realize this is probably like a rote stereotype at this point, but I'm assuming the only reason that you moved is that you are dabbling in uh, the production of meth. Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I like, want to learn a new trade. <sighs> programming. I mean, it's just programming. How interesting does it stay, honestly, for right, 25 years? Like, yeah, and you know we've got some good techniques, uh, continuous integration, deployment, things like that. Test first, like uh, these are things that can be applied to different verticals. And I was looking, <laughs> I was your, we ship meth to production on the first day, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I, you know, I figured it was a, a market ripe for disruption. <laughs> it's probably true. Um, uh, so yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Y'all, y'all kind of scattered to the four winds in some ways. You have Elric in Boston, and you're in New Mexico most of the time. And Joe's um, in now. Oh yeah, Joe moved to New York. Yep. And um, and honestly, the traffic is so bad in Austin that I'd say 50% of the time people stay home rather than drive into our centrally located office. So yeah. you know, we're that's actually something that we're struggling with right now because the bulk of the team is still in Austin, but the office space is underutilized. Our team size now, we have eight engineers, and five of them are in Austin. You know, our other staff is also in Austin. So do we, what do we do with the office? Like, that's a, it's a big question. Um, and that's, that's quite a, a cultural change, too, because when, when I was there, we would tell people, like, we want to be able to do remote someday, but we just don't know how to get into that culture to change the way that we do our meetings and change the way that we do, you know, stand-ups and coordination and communication, we, I didn't feel like we had the tooling at the time. So something, something like I knew that at some point there would be probably a forcing function to right. uh, basically like catalyze uh, something to allow, allow that to work. And I'm curious to know what that process was like there. I mean, I wish I could say that there was, there, there was a process uh, other than experiencing the force of the forcing function and then being forced into it. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, just kind of dealing with it. I have not taken a poll of the other remote employees, uh, of which now I am one, um, at least for the time being. So I, I don't want to speak for them, but it was a less painful than you might imagine. And the reason is because, and, and it's one of those things you actually gave me this analogy back probably three or four years ago, and I love it, is sometimes you're hanging off of a precipice. And you don't realize that you're actually, your, your toes are two inches off the ground. Oh. And, then, and then all you can perceive is the precipice and you feel the weight of your own body concentrated on your fingers gripped to the ledge. And you don't focus on the fact that you're actually, the fall is only two inches long. 
And that's kind of what we experienced with the, the remote culture. Now, I don't want to say we were, you know, were Pollyanna about it and, and didn't realize that this was a step that we were taking and making sure to check in with the remote employees. But one of the things is our communication styles were already very asynchronous, both for our client work, for our internal work, using mostly like Slack and GitHub pull requests and issues, certainly for like the development portion, very little changed. What we didn't realize is that because of our involvement in open source, we were already acclimated to a distributed work style. We just didn't really realize it. We didn't have to change much. I think where you know we have a lot more work to do is kind of integrating people socially and like making sure that you know conversations don't happen that aren't available for other people to consume kind of asynchronously. So like if you're having some architecture problem and you're sitting next to somebody, you know, you'll take that avenue rather than let, let it play out in chat uh, or over email. And there's definitely a certain portion of that. But I think that, you know, we still do a lot of pair programming. That's still our major mode. I'd say like 75% of our code gets written as people collaborating. And so, you know, while those kind of in-office discussions do happen, the ramifications circulate rather quickly. And most of those are in the context of people pairing inside the office. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I don't think the office and the physical space were as much of a bottleneck as we thought they might be. Um, and so because of the, like a lot of people did work from home already because of the traffic. Uh, and, you know, we were involved in open source and, you know, our communication with our clients is usually, you know, we don't have currently have any clients in Austin. So that's all to say that, that, that the transition was actually quite, quite natural. Um, and I think there's some strong analogies between collaborating in open source and having a remote culture in your office. I think what we, you know, what we need to get better about is making sure we get the team together, you know, at least twice a year, everybody together, making sure that people are able to like to, you know, understand their uh, priorities and get to circulate around and, and get introduced to a bunch of different people. And yeah. I don't know. There's 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 definitely a lot to be a lot of work to be done on the non-development front. It's interesting. Like the agile approach to things is to try something. I'm starting to think the agile and the scientific method are related where it's mm-hmm. like, here's a hypothesis. Here's the experiment. Here's what we think we want to learn. And then you learn it and you take the next step based on that information. And that mm-hmm. failure is an option. I think that's the point of agile is to make failure safe because it's small and you're guaranteed to learn from it. Like the point is right. to learn. And so right. I, I really like I'm starting to I'm starting to think that those are just like basically the same thing. That agile is like the application of the scientific method to product development. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you're being like agile or experimental about yeah. your work. And the trick is like any any scientific uh, discovery, the, the trick is in coming back around to it and analyzing it and deciding whether this was successful or a failure based on feedback, you know, and finding what the measurement mm-hmm. was that you were trying to improve and. Uh, so like the lesson there was, oh, people become disconnected from each other. We need to gather everybody for an all hands periodically. We didn't used to have to do that because all hands was every week at least, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, everybody was constantly, you know, you could just, there was a, a constant chatter and you could just mm-hmm. kind of, the context was just all sitting at that one table, uh, <laughs> kind of in that right. one room on 38th street. And all you needed to do was like dip your ear into that, uh, into that pool of context and you're set. Um, whereas that's just not an option, uh, right now. So, yeah. Um, I think the danger with agile is not being concentrated in your experimentation. 
think what gave us our fear about saying we're going to do remote work, because um, I remember we always talked about it and we danced around the issue, was are we going to lose who we are? You know, we have a set of way that we do things and there is power in kind of, you know, sticking to the framework of the way that you do things because you mm-hmm. understand it and you know it. So when you're when you're pushing and you're experimenting, being able to say, we're going to we're going to push and we're going to focus on this one area and we're going to iterate on it and we're going to keep everything else static. It's going to be the wall that we can walk along. But, you know, we are going to push in, in this area. And so I think the danger is if you're doing that in, in all the areas of your business or mm-hmm. all the areas, of your projects, you're iterating and, and refining, nothing ever gets done. Right. Uh, and so it's kind of like once you once you get to some ground that's solid. You know, when you do start iterating it, you start introducing instability. Um, and now we like, so, you know, when you go remote, you have to start thinking about remote work. Whereas like, we didn't have to think about that before. We were essentially the feature of saying that we were a one office company and an onsite company is we didn't have to think about that problem. One thing that you were just talking about is this idea of concentrating so that your experiments are happening like one or two or maybe three at a time instead of trying to run five experiments at a time. And yeah, there's another danger, I think, in Agile of seeking local optimization where you basically like, it's like taking a bacteria and running Mm -hmm. it through many, many, many iterations that's targeting like one thing and it mutates into this weird thing that only does this one thing or a dog breed that the whole, did you see that? I don't know where this came from, but there was like a, a, some scientific findings that, that there was a dog that was bred in like, ancient prehistoric times that was bred to turn a spit to roast meat over. So they bred a dog that its whole point of this dog was to turn a spit so that people could roast meat and go to sleep and let their like dog servant (laughs) cook for them, I guess. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty impressive. I would say like they're dystopias in the past. (laughs) Certainly canine dystopias. I guess, I guess we live in a canine dystopia. Oh, not, not in my house. This is a canine paradise. Uh, so yeah, that that's. I think that's a really interesting point, though, that limiting the number of concurrent experiments so that you can actually respond to them in a meaningful way, instead of just being like, "Wow, we learned a bunch of stuff we're doing wrong." Anyway, back to the, back to the grind, <laughs> yeah. back to sucking at everything. Right, right. That kind of feeds into a lesson that I have learned very, very, very recently. Uh, in the interview process for looking for like kind of my first real job in over a decade. And that that process is very humbling. And one of the humbling experiences was being rejected for a job from a a very notable, large, former startup here in Austin. And their interview process is really buttoned up. I got really deep into the interview process. And at the end of it, they're like, oh, you're, you're not technical enough. And it was really, it was just like, I don't know. It was it was hard for me to process at the time, but it's super easy now to look back and go, oh, I, I was definitely not a fit for that type of job. Uh, mm-hmm. If being able to, you know, write JavaScript on a whiteboard without the aid of Google to solve problems and refactor code is like a fundamental part of what is valued in a manager. There, this is not that's not going to be me. But one thing I, I like, it wasn't a colossal waste of time. There was a ton of time and energy I invested into that specific process, but I actually d- derived a ton of value out of it because every person I met there was focused on the same thing, their culture of making experimentation inexpensive. 
so that everything there is framed in terms of an experiment. What's the experiment here? What's the hypothesis? What's the expected outcome? How soon can we get to a place where we can validate that outcome? So it's kind of like everything is really lean. And yes, it does. Like I asked, like, what's the dark side of that? And it can lead to optimizing for a local maximum. So you have to pause every once in a while and reflect at a larger, you know, at a larger scale. But it, it changed my attitude about a lot of stuff. I tend to walk around fearing failure. That's more my speed. I'm afraid of failing because failure like can be catastrophic. But that's because I take big swings at stuff. When I go give a conference talk, it better be the best conference talk of my life. You know, when somebody's like, oh, that was the best conference talk I have ever seen. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so glad you said that because if you'd said literally anything else, I would have collapsed internally. You know, like the stakes are so <laughs> high for everything and making it safe for yourself to fail by treating things like an experiment and working with my teammates. And so like two or three scenarios over the following week when I was managing the team at my last company, somebody would bring something to me and I'm like, I instantly went to all the reasons this probably won't work. Mm -hmm. uh, here's the problem with this. And I thought and I immediately turned around, and went, wait a minute, bring me a hypothesis and the experiment and how we can experiment with this thing. And he's like, well, like we could, we could try this next week and we'll know whether or not this is a good idea. And we tried it the next week. It was like organizing an architecture team. Cause we didn't, we were waiting to hire an architect and mm -hmm. the results were mixed for reasons I won't get too deep into. Uh, <laughs> but the fact was it was, it gave us the freedom to try things. And, and I'm trying to like carry that spirit around with me now. It's been really eye opening. So like completely like a just, you know, like a 4% alteration in my the way that I think about problems, but it has right. the ability to dramatically alter the trajectory of how how I solve things in the future. So do you include now inside the planning process experiments like a certain number? So, you know, you, you know, the, the typical quote unquote enterprise development is, you know, we have our features, you know, the we're going to do them in this order because they're this priority and then, you know, Agile comes along. It's like you need to take these things and you need to break them up into small chunks so that they can be accomplished in small time slices, you know, so that you don't basically, you know, bark up wrong trees. Or yeah, but that's almost like a stupider but, version of Waterfall. But exactly. That's my that's exactly my point. It, whereas like the problem is there's no avenue for experimentation in there and like and rather than saying like the entire team is marching in this one direction that kind of meanders around and focuses in on the the local maximum which hopefully is you know relative to the market landscape is the absolute maximum saying like we're actually going to be marching in one major direction but we're going to be you know sending out scouts at all points like you know if you were actually you know I've actually been reading a lot of you know ancient military history and like it's just like insane that an army or even a detachment would like you know, go all in like one clump, like they're constantly sending out people like information mm -hmm. is really, really, really important. That's an uh, extremely, extremely good point. Like it's I, I've actually it's so funny because I've used a very similar description where we are trying to chart a course to this like ocean of opportunity somewhere. And we can't just send the whole team to this to in a direction, hoping that the ocean is in that direction. We have to have our Lewis and Clark. Somebody mm -hmm. has to be the cartographer. Somebody has to be the explorer. And that means that there there has to be a little bit more freedom for, for those explorers. I don't yet know how right. to translate that into software terms. I just know that that's a collaboration usually at most companies between product and development. That right. product is doing some of the exploring of the space. And then development is doing some of the exploring of the technical, uh, the technical capabilities and possibilities there. And 
Um, so, I mean, you see it. It's what's interesting is you see it in product planning. It kind of in the the large, like with the the waterfall, like you you see it in like huge organizations, right? They have a research and development department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if like Agile kind of saw the balkanization of your feature set into very like small component parts. Can you take the exact same principle and balkanize your research and development uh, and, and integrate it into kind of like micro iterations? We have this R&D, but we're going to integrate it in our, our day-to-day and week-to-week process. I, I think that is a really noble goal. And I think I see some people making progress toward that. The company I interviewed with does it almost to a pathological degree where there there is like a point of diminishing returns where um, yeah. you're sort of bound. Uh, I don't, I, I, you're sort of bound to this process of experimentation and you can only mm-hmm. at, at a certain point, you can only achieve incremental results. Some of these problems, you just need to be able to think about them for like a long, long time. Like, I love, I actually didn't read, uh, I actually didn't see the talk, but like everything from the title, like Rich Hickey's like uh, hammock driven development, just that title resonated with me I, so much. I was like, yes, because sometimes you just need to be in the hammock for six hours at a time, you know, or in the shower or like hiking or doing whatever it is that you need to do to like kind of put yourself in a Zen state where you're just, your brain is slowly turning its wheels and it can follow every lead to its conclusion without any interruption. Uh, And sometimes that process, you know, can take hours. Sometimes it needs to take weeks. Right. Um, I want to kind of pivot on that because that's actually one of the biggest things that I've learned in the intervening time uh, since leaving Frontside, which is creating space instead of trying to maximize like, one thing that I did when I was at Frontside and then did again at my next place and I'm realizing is really uh, has long-term uh, negative implications is cram as much into a workday as much, in, you know, as much output out as possible. I'm very output oriented. I want to, to jam as much into my day as possible. I want to jam as much software out the door as possible. I'm, it, and people described working at Frontside as like uh, while I was there as one of the most intense work experiences they'd ever had. That literally, like I can like project that literally just from my own intensity of trying to cram all that stuff and providing that space for developers to ruminate on hard problems, on some of the harder problems they encounter, providing space for managers. I've learned that a big chunk of what it is to be a manager is to be available. And so I actually want to write a sign. I I was like on the fence about doing this, but I think I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to, I have an office and I'm going to write a sign and put it up on the door that says, if I look busy, interrupt me and remind me I'm not doing this right. So like creating the space to, to ruminate or to be available for discussion or like people that protect their breathing room sometimes are made fun of. And especially in like American corporate culture, like I walked in and they were just like reading a newspaper. What the, you know, what the heck are you doing at work? If you're just going to read a newspaper, like, no, this is actually really important time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's, 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 yeah, it's something that, uh, I, yeah, I, I think about a lot. And and I know I've I've shared this analogy with you before. I don't know if I've done it on the podcast, but you know I, I saw and I I can't take credit for it. I actually saw it at DevOps Days. I think in 2013, there was a woman giving a talk and she was just talking about managing developers. But one of the things that she was saying was that if you looked at a 
microservices architecture or you looked at your just even your operating system and if your cpu was constantly pegged right like mm-hmm. it was you were you were squeezing out you know 100% of every you know time slice was you know instructions were just flowing through that you would have a very unhealthy very brittle very prone to failure software right. system right like if yep. if our microservices like were not available to actually like service requests and service excess requests and service spikes of requests yep. then something is fundamentally wrong I want to add to that a little bit because the thing that I noticed in managing a team where I was, I was received a ton of pressure to peg everybody out at a hundred percent and it jived with my philosophy at the time of, Hey, you know, I'm a hundred percent guy. Everybody I work with is hundred percent type people. And then let's peg everybody at a hundred percent. This is a startup. Let's get everything going. And I realized very, very quickly that if you don't preserve a little buffer for uh, like 20% buffer in that level of intensity, there is no ability to share resources. There's no, everything is now a silo. So if you're going to peg all your CPUs out, part of that thrashing is that there's no time for people to share things with each other. And people Mm -hmm. become very protective over their little silo all of a sudden. And it causes this like, it's actually like a it's like the the first stage of a catastrophic cultural collapse if everybody's pegged out at 100%. And literally just dialing down the intensity is often the only thing that's necessary to get people to feel comfortable sharing some of their time with each other. You do a really good job of that with the lunch and learns that you you, you mentioned that y'all are doing like better thoughtful lunch and learns and stuff like that. That is one of those forcing th- ways that you can force that and say, hold on, stop with the development and do some stuff where you're actually sharing things with your teammates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we do that. My biggest concern is that that actually increases the intensity. So, I mean, one of the things we've done is we used to actually be very formal about our lunch and learns. It's like, we've got to generate content uh, and put it out on the web so that people can see us. And we've, you know, we've, we've backed away from saying we're going, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to do them as often um, and make sure that people can actually do them. You know, yeah, making sure that people don't feel overwhelmed by their, you know, I've got a lunch and learn coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is to share something that you're passionate about and maybe introduce some really cool ideas uh, to ferment in people's head. Rather, that's kind of the goal. Um, rather than like we, there's there's certain things that where you know we do very much interested in creating content. Uh, but I think we've kind of we've been dancing around the ideas of distributed computing and IoT and uh, what are some of the say other blockchain? I'm gonna just virtually punch you in the face. <laughs> I actually didn't. Did I say blockchain? No, I just was waiting for you to say it. Okay, no, I, I haven't. Well, because that's the um, well, that's it. But it is like distributed computing in Web three, right? Like mm-hmm. these problems, and we're actually going to be podcasting about this next. Uh, so in two weeks, you can tune in to listen to us uh, talk about blockchain. But in the context of like distributed computing and and kind of one of the things that we're seeing, right, is now like we're kind of starting to pay the price of outsourcing all of our lives to these central services like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Um, And there's, I think now they're they're starting to build a credible and more mainstream movement to kind of wrestle back that control and say like, what would it mean to have software as a service that wasn't actually dependent on some central thing? Like what would it look like to have Slack where that Slack that looked like email, right? Where everybody had their own email server. I mean, 
maybe not a bad example, but like you've got an example, you've got an email at Gmail or Microsoft or Yahoo, uh, or your company run, it's, if it's big enough, it's running its own uh, Outlook client or something like that. Like email is actually a really great example. Um, now probably people are going to crucify me for saying this, but I think it's actually a good example of a distributed system that's worked well. Like I own all of my email, like all the messages that you send to me, I own and all the messages that I send to you, I also own, but you also own the messages that I send to you, right? Like that information is duplicated and it's fine, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if I send you an image, yes, it's on your hard drive or it's on, you know, it's on your Google drive. You send a message to me that's got an attachment. I also have that attachment. But the point is, is that we can each own our email and we each own our email service uh, and we can, we can change it up. That's not possible with Slack. That's not possible with Facebook. That's not possible with, you know, all these other kind of sharing platforms. Mm-hmm. All of them are controlled by this one thing. And so I think that, you know, that's something that we've been exposed to uh, through the Lunch and Learns. And I'm actually certainly very excited about. It's not something that we're going to be investing in immediately. You know, we're kind of dancing around that idea. But that's that's something that's come out of that. So, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, we've kind of refocused it on, you know, what is it that's something that you feel good about? But back to the original point, I think that, this is something that you, it applies on like all fronts, right? Like if you have a business where you can't actually take opportunities because you don't actually have people like, so there's maxing out at the individual level, right? Mm-hmm. Like filling up people's workspace with, with client work or filling it up with, you know, what have you, or, or having them work nights and weekends, there's individual maxing out, but then there's like maxing out of, you know, your business. So like, if you have, you know, we're a consultancy, if you have 100% utilization or you're shooting for 100% utilization, that everybody is placed on a project, that is a brittle and unsustainable system. Like I'm I, just wish becoming, you, I wish you would yeah. have told me that uh, 18 months before I left there. There was like <laughs> two years where we were at 100% for like two solid years. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, we're still 100%. Yeah, I wonder what would have happened if we'd had a little, like, if we had figured out how to build in uh, space. Part of the problem, so here's the thing, though. Space, nice space costs nice money. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's that's the thing is you have to charge more. Yeah. And you have to say, like, we are going to be more expensive than other people. You have to be dedicated to be at the forefront of, like, a cultural battle, essentially, mm-hmm. in the same way that people were with testing. Right. Yeah. Uh, where it was very you, you were with CI. Like CI is a given now, right? CI yeah, is like given this idea uh, was semi-revolutionary when you and I were talking about this in 2012, 2013. That we shipped to production on the first day. CI is we don't even start building software until the CI system is set up. Uh, the first thing we do is set up Jenkins and tests and get everything the pipeline right. working. And now that's just what people do. Just like by and large, that's how software gets is expected to be built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the tooling has really right. come up around that. But that was an expensive way to sell software five years ago that, mm-hmm. hey, this is this is going to cost more than bringing in, you know, Cowboy Bob and having them come jam, you know, in your console for 40 days and ship a bunch of stuff that then will most likely collapse and you won't know about it. Um, and Cowboy Bob has ridden off into, you know, Juarez, <laughs> Mexico. Uh, right, with his saddlebag stuffed with uh, your cash. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, you, so you have to, the, the problem is, 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 and this is, you know, when you pick these battles, you need to be prepared 
to fight the war of attrition of like, you're, they're not going to be able to perceive the value for six months a year, right? Yeah. You're going to have to ask, ask your clients to bet on this strategy, right? And it's a bet. And you're going to have to say like, it's going to pay off in six months. It's going to pay off in a year. And you're really going to start raking in like five years. That's yeah. when like, you know, try making that pitch to a startup founder that is borderline, like that is on the right verge of an anxiety attack. And you can kind of right. just figure out what my last year was like. And, right. uh, the, so that's one of the reasons we don't, you know, we don't really work with startups anymore. Yeah. They have a five year plan, but not really. Yeah. Like they're fighting for their survival and that, you know, and, and they're fighting for the opportunity to have, a a legitimate five-year plan. And so, yeah. you know, in that sense, it's maybe not a good fit for the way yeah. that like we develop software because, you know, uh, it, you either need an extreme, extraordinarily prescient founder who has been through this before, knows the true costs of self- software development and is pretty well funded so that they can actually, you know, because we're more expensive up front, like a lot more expensive up front. And so sometimes they just like flat out even don't have the cash. And that's right. like something that's, you know, you can, that, that you know, you can make a, a, a quick, like it's not a good fit, but then also there needs to be this understanding and uh, an acknowledgement that, you know, what you're really shooting for is your five-year dividend. Yeah, it's, re- it is really interesting. The, the turn that occurs when a, when a company finds product market fit, by then it's too late to fix the problems. So it's really it's really tricky to find the balance of how much energy do you put into the success case for a company before they have product market fit? Like how much time and energy do you, in, do you invest in betting that this is going to be successful versus betting that if it is successful, hopefully we'll have the time, money, uh, and resources to redo a bunch of the things that we are going to have to apologize for later. Right. And I think like that's, where do that's those what makes two, Where do those two lines cross on that yeah. graph? Yeah, because you and I have both seen startups completely sunk by somebody who was overly focused on building a scalable architecture in a company pre-product market fit. That is a common story where an engineer that doesn't understand the business value of what they're doing and only focused on quote-unquote quality will absolutely torpedo. Uh, they'll chew up your first million and a half of, of funding and leave the leave the place in just a smoldering pile of ashes at the end. So it's, it is tricky. It's, it's totally a difficult, uh, a difficult thing. But like, I think coming back to your point of being sort of a vanguard cultural, like, uh, the tip of the spear on some of these cultural changes, DevOps would be one people that were really investing in like DevOps culture in 2010, 2012 saying, Hey, this is automation is the future of how software gets shipped, maintained, observed, uh, supported. And so now it sounds like the bit. So what is your big bet for the future? Mm, Boy. That's a great question. There are two bets. One you're going to like, one you're going to vomit. At. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't work for you. <laughs> <laughs> you need to serve, what is it? Like you need to serve the, the spiny urchin with the, the yellow tail. Is that a Sonic the Hedgehog reference? Uh, it's just a sushi reference. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I know some people don't like, like, uh, like, don't like urchin. Uh, okay. Or maybe like they don't like eggs. Uh, what's it like the, 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 the row that come with sushi, yeah. but they're on the yep. same plate. Um, so I would say the first one that I've been thinking about a lot is optimizing for capacity, uh, and being able to handle spikes and not being at a hundred percent, both for people and for like uh, utilization. I think that's something that is, I don't see how you can have a healthy software development process if 
people are completely spiked on delivering, like heads down, delivering features for a product. That is something that I'm betting on. Essentially, like, you know, you could call it the 25% time, but it's really about having excess capacity to exploit opportunities as they arise and then being protective of that excess capacity, right? Because you can exploit an opportunity. You have your CPU has a spike load up to 100%, but then make sure you back down to 50% at some point or 75%. And so, you know, I would very much like to see front side have a bench where people can rotate out and they're working on uh, different stuff that are not even client like related. They can, you know, kind of recharge their creative tanks. I don't think, you know, it's not going to be idle. Yeah, I've really come around on and I really hated this at the time, but I've actually come around to the thoughtbot style of working on a product where mm-hmm. a, because because owning and managing a product and developing it as a side quest the goal is not necessarily for that product to catch fire and become the world's next big thing and to replace your consulting revenue. The goal is to give people a sense of like, it's sort of like, think about all the stuff that you've learned in your side projects that you went back and brought to your work. And some of my biggest gains as a developer have come from having a side gig of some kind, some side project that like, that's how I learned ever that changed my life. And I would never have gotten to try it if I was waiting for somebody at work to tell me it was okay to do it. So it's about right. taking that permission back for yourself and giving yourself permission to try stuff. So it could be mm-hmm. something like that or it could be you know, uh, like the content stuff that y'all do or it could be you know, conference talks. It could be whatever. But it, mm-hmm. the goal isn't necessarily to produce things that have a direct return. It is to create the space to allow people to flex some muscles of creativity that you may not get in your day-to-day work. And that's mm-hmm. very difficult to offer to people in any company. Now, having explored startups and larger companies, and but I would say especially in a consultancy where the exchange rate is dollars for days, you know, it's sort of like when I was freelancing, I could feel every vacation I took draining both real money and opportunity money out of my bank account. That's such a hard, difficult thing to do. And, and so you actually have to create the budget ahead of time and say, yes. this budget is allocated to these things. And I am, I, it's already spent. Anyway, that's really tough to do. If you can exercise the discipline necessary to do that and create the environment for that, I, th- I would say you're ahead of you know 90% of companies in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, that's, so that's something I definitely want to bet, bet on um, because I think that's, that's where the best things come from. Okay. So what's the thing um, I'm going to hate? Uh, functional programming. Oh, Charles. Uh, okay, stop. I have to stop you. Do you know what I'm doing? Did I tell you this yet? That I am participating? <laughs> I, when yes, I told him I, this, I, I, I was I like, Charles that. is going to have a field day with this, but I am participating <laughs> in a Haskell study group. No way. And I'm, I'm like four, four exercises into this thing. I'm supposed to do four more for next week. And I'm like, this is bizarrely easy, actually, after as much JavaScript as you and I did in sort of a functional style and then learning Elixir. And I was like, wait a minute, the case statement is uh, Elixir just stole Haskell's case statements. Mm-hmm. So like so far, I'm not finding functional programming to be onerous or anyway, but we'll see when yeah. we get to the, str- the, the, the static typing. But so far, like I'm not getting any of that in the sort of earlier lessons of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the static typing, but the thing is you can do, you can, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not 100% necessary. I mean, it is in, in Haskell for sure, but that I'm surprised what, what inspired you? We have a, an architect at the office that was like, Hey, I want to do sort of a, a functional programming book club. So we have a, a Slack. Room are you doing, are you doing, uh, study group. are you doing Haskell from first principles? It, no, that one was a little actually intimidating. Um, really? 
Yeah, okay. it gets it gets into the the lingo a little early, and mm-hmm. we're doing one called Get Programming with Haskell that is a little more Haskell from First Principles is kind of um, math oriented. So for somebody with uh-huh. a math background but not necessarily a program background, it's perfect. But for somebody with a programming background that is just yeah. trying to understand functional programming principles using mm-hmm. Haskell, Get Programming with Haskell is actually a really great option. Okay, that's actually I have not heard of that about that one. The stuff that I'm looking at looks just like Elixir. So, I mean, it's early, but um, it's very comfortable so far. Yeah. So this is the thing. It's all a matter of messaging and marketing because I really feel – so it is like there are a lot of behaviors that you see sometimes in currently entrenched functional programming communities that I think are – you know. Uh, well, I think they're objectively repulsive, but I think they're like also uh, pragmatically repulsive in that they repulse, you know, potential member community members. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, people talk about like these things that are uh, they, they use kind of abstruse terminology that's like and they're just kind of chattering back and it's very jargon oriented. And there's just people operate with a different set of concrete things. So when, when you and I are talking, for example, we might talk about a Rails controller, right? And that's a very concrete thing. Like you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that you have held in your hand, right? Literally, mm-hmm. like remember when we got that Rails code base that came as the thumb drive? Yes, um, I did. But, but the point is, is like you knew that this had a Rails code base on it. There were any number of controllers. And when I say controller to you, a controller is an abstraction, but not really. Like once you work with an abstraction long enough, it becomes concrete. And so part of the problem is just a mismatch in language where people are talking in their world about concrete things, like things that you can touch and you can feel and you can exchange and they're very relatable. Uh, But from, you know, another person's perspective, they're talking about something that's totally abstract and totally opaque and totally, you know, what have you. Um, and so I feel like there's a, yeah, there's a huge mismatch there. Um, and that's been kind of one of the big bets that the other big bet that I'm making is on this, trying to make what is currently abstract to JavaScript and Ruby developers be concrete. Um, and I think that we're going to see type classes like functor and monoid and semigroup and all these things that are abstract to you now become concrete over the next five years. And so that's something that I'm betting on. Check um, check out this. I, I, and I know that uh, you have a good relationship with the people that that did the other book, but it really does come, tend to come from more of a, a mathematical background. And this one actually does speak to people with JavaScript, Ruby, Python experience. Like, hey, here's how yeah. here's how you will perceive these things. This is, and and so it's much more much more approachable. I'm still in the first yeah. unit of the book, but I'm having sort of tasted it a little bit. Is like, wait a minute, this is actually extremely familiar and not yeah. super intimidating. Well, exactly, and that was kind of so. I read the 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 other book, and I think I was also aided by the fact that I tried to learn Haskell probably for like five times in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so, you know, I also had the benefit of jumping against the wall with the Velcro suit and bouncing off four times and yeah. five times, fifth time it stuck. Yeah. Uh, so I had like just temerity on my side and kind of, you know, a general like feeling, but uh, you know, that's definitely the, the, the lesson that I actually came away from reading that book book was like, Oh, there's a mismatch in concrete concepts. Like it's not, it's using concrete concepts that are concrete to, people with a CS background or mathematics background or people who are brand new, honestly, people who are brand new to programming who don't actually have JavaScript or Elixir or Ruby or any other thing to lean on. 
Like I think that, you know, the, the first principles book is actually pretty decent for them too, because they don't have anything to compare to. And don't um, have anything to unlearn. Yeah. They don't have anything to unlearn. Whereas one of the things I took away was like, I was like, Oh man, I'm using semi-groups all the time. This is something that I do constantly. Like yep. when I'm coding, I might do it eight times in a day. I just didn't have a name for it. Right. They're like design patterns just at a micro level. Yes. Micro design patterns. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a restful architecture for your code. Like in rest, you only get five verbs. There's like, there's five methods, man. That's all you got. Okay. So those are the two bets. And I want to, I want to cover one more thing. Cause I know we're like super over time, but the last thing I want to be able to say about like talking about what we've learned since I left Frontside, and, but I want to put a, a kind of a bow on that. So the two things that you're betting heavily on are functional programming as the basis for like solid architectures in the future, like mm-hmm. the, the work that y'all are doing. And yeah. I'd like to say, I would also like to say, and this is something, let me just, let me just add one more thought. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand, and this is in no way, like I don't understand people who give, do like the saying goodbye to framework X. Like mm-hmm. that's not me with an object oriented program. <laughs> like, well, you, you sent, Often abstractions are like oversimplifications, but they're really useful. Sort of like rich hickey, simple versus easy. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, there's a lot of problems with that metaphor. It's a leaky abstraction, but it's a useful abstraction. And Gary Bernhardt's functional core imperative shell is a leaky abstraction, but it's a useful abstraction. If people haven't seen or experienced that, it's pretty good. The subtlety is it that this these are tools that are suited to certain situations a little better. And those same situations can exist in the same code base, can mm-hmm. exist in the same program. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I still, I love Ruby. Like, I mean, I adore it. Uh, and, you know, so, like, I, I, so many is like, I've been researching functional programming. This has been going on for the last four years. Like, so many times people are like, oh, I just can't stand, you know, this tool anymore. And I'm like, man, I still love Java. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I, I don't understand how, like, learning to love something like decreases your love for something else. Um, that happens the first two times that you fall in love is that you feel like you have to love the old thing less in order to love the new thing. And then you start realizing, no, you are allowed to fall in love with new things without falling out of love with the old things. Mm-hmm. That's a, yeah. just a, like I would almost use that as an interview question. Is there, is there some way to use that as a way to gauge somebody's actual real concrete uh, maturity as a developer? Because that is a, yeah, I mean, you could say like, what's maturity. something that, What's some tool that you no longer use that still like informs your day-to-day? Yeah. Your day-to-day like, like routine. I guarantee you people that were doing small talk in the eighties, think about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Right. So I want to cover one last thing. Growing, right. If you're going to grow as a developer, you can't be lit. You can't, uh, you can't be shrinking at the same time as you're growing. Otherwise you're like, you know, the same size, just in a different place. However, you don't get any medium think piece points. Nobody does the one clap, two clap 40 for <laughs> blog posts that are like why I'm still using some programming language, but using one a little more than I used to use yeah. this one a little less. <laughs> zero and, claps. Yeah. Zero claps on that think piece. I just want to cover one last thing before we wrap this up. And it is the fact that front side, the biggest gift that front side gave me was the mission for the next 20 years of my career. I I think it could change, but I'm pretty confident about this at this point being, you know, approximately 20 years into my career. uh, I feel like I kind of have a feeling for what the next 20 years is about. And the front side really drilled that into me and helped me like focus it and help me uh, sort of dial it in. And it is this idea that 
there is an incoming generation of programmer that thinks about things differently than the previous generation in a pretty radical way. Because the previous generation all came out of the same schools. They all look the same. They all have this a, a similar shared set of values in general. They created the – you know, I, I, I'm not actually going to be overly critical of the Silicon Valley culture that exists now. It is a result of the type of people that came out at the time that value innovation over almost anything else. That you know, people talk about ripe for disruption. The fact is – that has been an engine of economic growth and progress for society in a lot of ways that has a lot of costs that weren't factored in by a bunch of people who all thought the same way. And now with people coming through code schools and people coming from different backgrounds and people coming from different environments, they're looking at programming and software as either an economic opportunity or something they didn't see that they could possibly do. The, those doors were not open to that group of people before. There is a natural influx of people, but many of them are bouncing out because they're not finding that group of people. Uh, they don't have a shared enough set of values that the people that are new are coming in and finding job opportunities, finding promotions, uh, finding leadership positions. And so I know now that my mission over the next 20 years of my career is to create those opportunities for people that have different backgrounds from me and different experiences, the career tracks, the promotions. Uh, endorsing and supporting and kind of sponsoring this incoming group of freshmen into our industry that come from uh, different places, different backgrounds, different problems that they care about solving. They want to figure out how to solve the Flint, Michigan water crisis instead of uh, delivering socks to people in Silicon Valley, you know? So mm -hmm. uh, I feel like we're at the beginning of a sea change in the value system potentially of our entire industry, but that's going to require training up the next generation of technical leadership. And I felt like the best thing I could do right now is learn to be a better manager because I really like that job. And it provides the opportunity to find, hire, sponsor, promote, uh, and encourage those people to move into their own leadership positions. There are lots of other things that, you know, a person, you could be a VC and care about that stuff. You could have lots of different positions and put yourself in a position to do that. You could be a, a consultancy owner. You know what I mean? Like there are jobs that you can do that you can accomplish that goal. And I, but it gives me such a sense of direction that when I'm looking for a job, I was looking for a home for that mission rather than just a thing that I felt like doing like, okay, this job is important to me because I need it to house me and this mission, uh, it, so that I can support my family, but have enough emotional overhead to participate in community stuff. And, but enough ability to lead within an organization, enough influence to actually like push that agenda so that the next generation of people are making better companies. So anyway, like all of that came out of my time at Frontside where you and I sat around talking about how do we build a place that is like a monastery. This was These were your words. You remember this? We want a monastery for code where people can just focus on becoming better developers. And underneath that, though, was the sense that this was a place of opportunity for people that might go somewhere else and stagnate as a developer. This will be a place to accelerate them. And so uh, that kind of spun me out in, and accelerated me into my mission. So anyway, I just wanted to I wanted to point out that that was like the with a bullet is the most important thing that came out for me in my time at Frontside was that it clarified for me what I was trying to accomplish with the next, you know, couple decades of my career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's fantastic. You definitely did a lot of that both here at Frontside and, and um, I mean, you're continuing to do that. I definitely want to see more uh, more public speaking from you, maybe some less perfect that one David Emberhoff is actually like fantastic. But I mean, you're also not about, you're also able to help people find their mission too. Like that's like, um, 
I mean, like the talks you gave at like Keep Ruby Weird, and even like really like the the first talk you gave at Lone Star Ruby uh, about uh, moving moving Ember. Like it's always how do I f- adapt to like what I'm feeling to like my overall uh, overall like mission, and then like relate that back to technology. I man, I just can't wait. I can't wait. Uh, I think this is when are you when are you gonna get when are you gonna get back when are you gonna hit the road again. I think this is the year I'm going to start. I'm going to start thinking about this stuff. Like I'm looking at the stuff that I wanted to talk about on this podcast. And I was like, Oh no, wait, that's like a dozen podcasts. <laughs> like, no, absolutely not. That's not possible. I, I will say I miss so much of this time that I spend with you like this. Like I don't want to let it go. I really miss working with you. I really miss having these conversations whenever I want. Uh, this has been a very, very special, like privilege for me to be able to do this with you today. Um, and congratulations on, on Frontside continuing to thrive and grow and become its uh, more of its own entity and more of its own, have more of its own special flavor. And it makes me really happy to see uh, the people coming out of there that it's still doing its mission of, of making great software by making great developers. It makes me real happy. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we can keep on keeping on. Yeah. Um, uh, I do miss working with you. I miss like, you know, the conversations that we would have in like the kitchen, uh, which are basically an extension of this podcast. Yeah. Um, but I also, man, I really, 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 really like working with uh, the group of people that are here today. You know, I've just seen them producing just some absolutely amazing things. And honestly, there's a selfish aspect to it too. Like I get stimulated, like my own thinking and learning is stimulated by the people that I work with. And like I said, you know, the, the whole co- side note that we had about, uh, you know, distributed systems and, and IOT and, and, you know, just a constant ferment, uh, of things. So I still really, really, really enjoy it. That makes and, me happy. Um, and I'm really glad that we got to like, uh, you know, we got to kick it today. So yeah, me too. I thought you were going to say that your 20 year mission was to have like your perfect, uh, Emacs initialization setup. Oh my gosh. Um, Some of these days I'm going to figure out Rubicon. <laughs> Actually, do you want to pair on that? Yeah, let's do that. All right, everybody. I'm going to sign off. If anyone wants to continue the, the conversation, obviously you can get in touch with Brandon. He is misspelled to Viking on Twitter, T-A-H-V-I-K-I-N-G. Uh, always come at him. You don't, won't don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> I work for a really cool company, and if you ask me about it on Twitter, I'll tell you all about it. Awesome. And we, of course, are frontside. Um, you can get us on Twitter at the frontside or just drop us a line to contact at frontside.io. And we would love to talk to you more about this podcast and uh, all of the wonderful things that we do here, uh, which includes building custom software that uh, you can stake your future on. That's going to be good for the five-year outlook. So with that, goodbye, Brandon. Goodbye, everybody. And we Bye, Charles. You. I love you. You too.